All right, so I'm really excited about this conversation today. I have with me Michael Weingarth, who is um, my favorite follow on Twitter. He, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, seriously, you, uh, the the way you talk about neurobiology and neuropsychology, it's caused me, um, I wouldn't say to rethink, but really refine the way that I approach teaching and learning. And, you know, I appreciate everything that you're doing. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, the kindest welcome I think I've ever gotten. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's well-deserved. And, you know, I've already dug into a lot of the resources that you recommend. Um, I'm on this one right now, emotions, learning in the brain. And oh, it's a great uh, book. I, I'm telling you everything you said about it, it doesn't disappoint. Yeah. You know, so, you know, there are a lot of teachers who are in the classroom who think that they don't have the time or they can't understand this stuff. What, what do you say to them? Uh, I mean, that's, it's true in some extent, like no one really has time for a lot of the stuff. And I think teachers in particular are, you know, underpaid and overworked in a way that has become culturally acceptable, which is, you know, depressing and wrong. I'm not trying to say that should be the norm. Um, but I think for a lot of teachers who say like, I can't, I can't make time for this, or I can't possibly incorporate this. Um, I think emotions learning in the brain is one of those books that even if you're scanning it, you know, 20 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, um, if you can bear it <laughs> to find those 10 minutes, I think that it will reward you in riches, you know, uh, you will find that the return on investment is extremely high for that particular book. And for also for a lot of the other resources that I think I've put out there, I think most people, uh, most teachers can get a lot of practical application out of it, or they can see connections between what they're doing and the results, like the kind of feedback they're getting in new ways. So I think for me, this paid me back when I was doing the initial research. Um, I, I worked a lot in the one-on-one -on -one environment. Even when I was in the classroom, half my job was one-on-one -on -one work with students. And so for me, you know, seeing that I could have tools for refining what I was doing and getting immediate feedback about how it was working and then learning how to tease apart that feedback, not just in terms of my own conceptions of you know, rigor or intelligence or hard work or work ethic, but being able to tease it apart alongside pedagogy, which I had read a lot of, and then adding this new neurobiology, neuropsychology component, where then I could say, hey, this is executive functioning, or this is a processing issue, or this is a combination of something that isn't showing up on this student's neuropsychological evaluation. Being able to tease that apart meant that I was that much more flexible and adaptable in differentiating whatever I was doing or just connecting with the student. And also it meant I wasn't projecting my own assumptions about how the brain works on them. Um, I think for Mary Helen Imerdino Yang, who's at USC Candle, um, you know, she's primarily a, a neuroimager alongside of the research that she does. And she started as a middle school science teacher, which is one of the reasons that I think this book is so accessible for teachers is that she's, she's been there. Um, and she talks a lot about her own personal anecdotes and how that's informed her research. But, um, for that book in particular, the idea that the emotional context of everything you do in the classroom impacts how the students receive all the components of learning. For me, that was a you know game-changing concept. Um, shifted everything I thought I knew about the brain. You know, and I'd read a lot of raw cognition up until that point in neuroscience that, you know, quote unquote cognitive science that focused on learning. Um, but the idea that you could have these emotional signals and neurobiological structures where emotion actually categorizes and signals what type of memory should be formed or how the memory should be associated 
uh, it just, I don't know, it, it changed everything I thought I understood about how emotion intersects with thinking. Um, so for me, I think that book is well worth the, the effort it takes to, to muscle through it if it's hard. Um, but again, everything that I think I've, I've put out there isn't like, you know, I mean, if you're spending hours looking through all the studies I randomly repost that are from like, you know, <laughs> frontiers in neuroscience, that's probably not worth the teacher's time. But I do think that this stuff and the neuropsychology books I've recommended, I think those are ones that really do give you a lot of practical tools and inroads into seeing things that you didn't know were there. And then once they're there, I think it makes you much more sensitive, much more aware and more in touch with the student experience. And, you know, you're right. So some, some of the stuff that you put out there, it's a little dense when you talk about the studies, this is, uh, I find it to be very accessible. Um, you know, learning that transfers, that was an, another resource that yeah. you put out there that I just yeah, finished. A great book. Uh, uh, yeah. Another great one. But even if some of the things aren't, um, necessarily accessible to teachers or they don't have the time to dive in just questioning what we do and why we do it, you know, that's, yeah. that's kind of where it starts. Totally. You know? Um, and, you, I think you hit on something really important, um, the intersections and like a lot of times we compartmentalize and we're just trying to, we're trying to get through the day. We're trying to solve a problem and not understanding. And this is especially true of classroom teachers. You become so hyper-focused on this is what I'm seeing from my students. How do I address this specific thing? Not understanding that, oh, wait a second this is a symptom, not the cause. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so I, I think that's what you kind of do so well is just highlighting, Hey, look, there's so much other stuff going on here that, you know, what you're seeing, that's like superficial. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I think this, a lot of that stems from my, like that, that was me about 12 years ago with a student who had a subtype of dyslexia I didn't know they had. And I just assumed that this student was like kind of shy and not really into reading and writing that much. Uh, and she managed, you know, fairly decent grades for an entire year, like about six months I was teaching her before I realized what was going on. Uh, and that knocked me off the horse. You know, that made me realize like how little I actually understood and how quick my own assumptions about the brain informed and, and intelligence for that matter informed what I did and how I thought about my students. And so you talk a lot about inclusion and how we can't really be inclusive because we don't really know what the students are dealing with. Right. So that was something that, you know, really resonated with me is, you know, so now I, I don't say I have an inclusive environment. I'm striving towards inclusion, you know, and uh, just that flexibility of, you know, when you see something that you didn't anticipate, how do you pivot and provide what they need? So do you have any tips on how teachers can identify or like, um, you know, support, I, I guess, uh, these needs of students? Yeah. I mean, I think, like you said, it's important on the inclusion part, right? It's like, if we're striving towards inclusion, you know, like how can we know what we're looking for until we've identified it? Um, and I think if you're interested in dismantling the entire component of like systems of oppression that, you know, like between ableism, racism, and misogyny, I think there's a lot working against students, um, you know, that, that just make learning emotionally, if we're going back to the emotional coding of it, it's an emotionally fraught time. If you have any kind of learning difference, diagnostic bias and referral bias makes it harder for, you know, students that aren't white males, basically, to get 
more accurate diagnoses. Even if you are a white male, there's still a degree of uncertainty in this because of the ableist framing of education and intelligence itself. Um, and so if we're going back to what we can do as teachers to be more aware, ways we can spot things, strategies, or whatever sort of you know bullet point type things we can hit, um, in my opinion, those things are going to fall short because you're taking something that somebody else has prepackaged for you and you're throwing at the wall in, in the hope that it sticks, right? And it's like, in an emergency, those books are super helpful. If you have that like 50 differentiation strategies for like, I don't know, dyscalculia, having a manual like that is useful. You should get one if you work with students who have dyscalculia. Um, but beyond that, if you're not just wanting to be in that environment where you're literally reaching for an encyclopedic uh, or encyclopedia of strategies to apply and hope that you find the right one, I think the best thing that most teachers can do is look at two things in particular. Um, the first is executive functioning and neurodevelopment. Um, there's a really good book called, I think it's called Executive Functioning and Child Development by um, the Jaegers, which is, uh, I forget their first names, but it's a husband and wife duo. It's a great book that explains there's four levels of executive functioning. There's sort of uh, interpersonal, intrapersonal. I forget the third one. And the last one is symbol systems. And symbol systems is always the last to acquire developmentally speaking. And there's all these interesting ways in which behavior, cognition, and emotion are very much all tangled together when we're in preschool and kindergarten and most likely all the way through like maybe our mid-20s school in a frame like the way that school frames all of this it pretends that those executive functions become discrete and they become fully developed starting at first grade and then they track unilaterally or uniformly upward so reading this book hopefully gives people more insight into looking at things that would you know previously be thought of as disorganization as laziness as um getting easily confused as not being able to segment or look at um you know, a, a complex field of vision, uh, it gets people an understanding of how brains acquire these things in terms of behavior, in terms of a social environment, and in terms of a symbol system environment, you know, like a, a more classical math or reading frame. And I think once you look at that and you see the ways in which kindergarten and preschool, mixed age groups, all these things do so much to support executive functionality and how it's so tied to emotion and reaction and behavior and cognition, Getting that insight into these connections lets you start seeing things that you might categorize, like you said, as, as symptoms uh, or as behavior. You can start seeing that now as actually an intersection with cognition. And you can see a student who is disorganized or attempting to, you know, or like take notes in a certain way that doesn't seem to make sense to you. You can then look at this and understand it in this broader frame to say, you know what? It's not actually the fact that they're disorganized. There is an underlying organization. It just doesn't work in this particular context. It's working through this other one. And so that that type of book, I think, gives you both the, the deep background as well as the enough examples to see how it manifests. And a lot of the examples are based on the transition from kindergarten to first grade, where we see this massive drop off in supporting executive functions specifically and how that translates to not necessarily failures, but like ways in which students are squeezed in unhelpful ways by new constraints that there there's no support for. So that's like the first thing I would say is every teacher should read that, especially um, people at the high school level where it's assumed that all this stuff has been taught and learned. Uh, I think it's, it's tr a huge treasure trove for people in high school. Um, the second thing I think is the most worthwhile is um, 
just attempting for your own sake to look at your own understanding of intelligence and like write it down, document it, um, learn what your own brain recognizes as smart and good work, and then just like <laughs> rip it to shreds. <laughs> um, just absolutely destroy it. Um, spiritually, I think that's got some some good cleansing energy for it. But I think um, attempting then to go back and say, why do I think this is smart? And how else can I see this in every one of my students? I think this is an exercise that Alana Horn um, does for her teacher trainings, where it's attempting to get to that asset orientation, uh, where you're trying to find strengths in all things. But it's in beyond the concept of strength. I think the the thing that I always found interesting is why do I think certain things are intelligence, and how does that actually reflect what's actually going on in a brain? And for me, that was teasing out all those things to look at how I can spot learning difference, learning struggle, learning success, or even in a broader spectrum, just thinking about all the neuropsychological metrics, learning what they were, and then seeing how they manifest or what combinations of them manifest in certain error patterns. So for me, the deconstruction was a huge part of my work because I work with students that are twice exceptional or have really hard to diagnose learning issues. I think for teachers though, if you can look at what do I think is intelligence and what parts of things do I recognize as good or smart work, how do those trace back to neuropsychology, to emotion, to executive functions and trying to get yourself more technical vocabulary for what quote unquote smartness looks like, then lets you see all the other ways in which smartness may be manifesting and you might be missing it. And then it ultimately lets you dismiss the concept of smartness. Uh, because once you figured out that it's just an arbitrary set of combinations of things that school in particular is preoccupied with, it lets you realize that all these things happen all the time in student brains. Like there's an incredible amount of adaptive compensation and really impressive neuroplasticity where you see um, regions of the brain that weren't, you know, you know, aren't necessarily associated with the task being recruited to do it. Um, and brains are amazing like that. And once you get to that level of understanding how complex they are and how dynamic and how adaptable, it lets you really realize that intelligence and smartness are, you know, they're, they're cultural constructs. You know, they're not necessarily absolutes. And I think once you can dismantle your own concept of smartness and intelligence, it lets you see students as they are. And that's the first step to sort of getting to an anti-ableist place of helping students. Um, so I think read that book, Executive Function and Child Development, especially, again, especially if you're in high school, I think, where it's long been assumed that those executive function systems are in play and, and set. And then the second thing for everybody, I think, is deconstructing how you think of intelligence manifesting. Uh, and then trying to trace that back to its scientific roots as much as possible. All right. So you said two things in there that I just like you to explain for people who aren't, <laughs> who aren't familiar. Um, yeah. you, you talked about twice exceptional learners and yep. brain, brain compensation. So uh, could you just talk a little bit about those? Sure. Uh, twice exceptional is not a term I, I would use. I use it just because it's the accepted term for students that qualifies both gifted and learning disabled. Um, and so if you usually get these, uh, if you get diagnosed with that, what happens is you've probably scored somewhere on a blanket gifted assessment, uh, which are again, given out to sort of everybody just to see if they qualify or students that have achieved certain GPAs or grade markers or referrals. And then, uh, you know, also have a diagnosed learning disability, which again, isn't the word I would use, but that's, that's how you qualify for being 2E, which is twice exceptional. Um, so if you are a twice exceptional learner, the tricky part about this is that um, 
you know, neuropsychological evaluation, which is the process that we use to look for identifying what specific learning issue you have. Um, it's categorically very bad at identifying twice exceptional learners. Uh, most twice exceptional learners are undiagnosed um, just because there's this phenomenon called compensation, which leads us into that second point of cognitive compensation or brain-based compensation. So compensation, uh, the classic example that if you were a clinical neuropsychologist, um, you would get trained on is that you get hit in the temple with a baseball and it temporarily blinds you um, because of brain swelling or brain, uh, brain inflammation. So what may happen is that um, while you are cannot see, your other senses right, become more pronounced. You hear a little bit better or you just figure out how to navigate the world based on touch, sound, right, and without sight. So compensation in a really crude example, that's, that's compensation. What people like Mary Helen Imoner Yang, who wrote that Emotions Learning in the Brain book, and also what you'd see in, in books like Executive Function and Child Development, is that if there is a certain unavailable pathway, like a set of nerves, uh, sorry, a set of neurons that don't connect A to B, right? The way that we might expect them to. So let's say this is reading, right? And we've taught reading in a certain way. We have this way of teaching reading in the state of, let's say, Louisiana. And we teach it this way, and this is the curriculum we're using. And for 80% of the students, A goes to B. For remaining 20%, A does not connect to B. And these students struggle and they get referred for learning disabilities uh, for evaluation and they may or may not find things. Now, compensation occurs because let's say in that 80%, 10% of those students actually still struggle with reading. They've just figured out a workaround that is perhaps more energy intensive or less efficient than the rest of those students whose neurons connect A to B. Now, again, this isn't actually real. The neural chain for reading is immensely huge and connects with <laughs> a variety of systems. So I, I don't wanna portray it like there's just a one-stop shop here or that you can fix this. Um, but those students for whom A does not connect to B, it's really hard to know if everyone actually is connecting A to B. We've just assumed that they do because they appear to be reading. In reality, a huge percentage of those students aren't reading the way that we expect them to. And this is compensation, right? If you have disodetic dyslexia, which is a subtype of dyslexia where you can recognize the sound of a word and you can recognize words meanings from context, but you can't actually remember the visual imprint of the word, it's visual stimuli associated with meaning. So if you saw the word, you know, psychopharmacology by itself, um, you wouldn't know what it is because you might not be able to remember what it actually means. Um, so it's the seeing of the word is what's difficult, not necessarily the hearing of the word. If you have the flip side of this, it's called dysphonic dyslexia. Now, subtypes of dyslexia are hard to diagnose because you can still functionally read if you have one of these subtypes. It just depends on the severity of it as it manifests with whatever particular method you're taught to read on. Um, now, let's say that you went to a Montessori school where your teacher had redone all the reading materials with Orton Gillingham. And 90% of those students or 95% of those students appeared to be reading normally by the end of first grade. They may still not connect A to B, but it's just that the compensation patterns had more available pathways to route through because of that different way of teaching reading. Um, so a lot of this idea of compensation is that context, the context in which we're taught something, as well as the content matter a great deal. But there's also the thing to consider is the student's individual brain structure, their individual neurobiology, and how that intersects with the stimuli, as well as the emotional context of school. And this is the part where I think um, a lot of this is very simple, um, unlike everything else I've said, which is definitely more on the you know more intense neuro side. 
if a student doesn't feel safe, um, they're not going to learn. It's going to impact their cognition. If they have fear, they're they're not going to learn. If they can't eat healthy and sufficiently, they're not going to learn the same way. If they're exposed to lead in their water supply, if they're exposed to environmental toxins that make them make it significantly harder to breathe regularly because pollution rates are significantly higher in inner cities than they are outside of it. Uh, all these things impact how a student thinks and learns. And moreover, they impact how those neuro, those neural pathways map a to whatever end you're trying to get them to. And what's confusing about all this is that for a long time, science, specifically the field of cognition and cognitive science, has sought to isolate out emotion from its studies. So things like cognitive load theory, dual coding, all that is raw cognition, meaning it's cognition without an emotional component. School can never happen in a purely cognitive context, right? There's always something going on in school because you're with other humans. So there's social stuff, there's behavioral stuff, there's hormones that get activated when you're around people that look from different differently from you. Um, there are hormones that are activated when your temperature, body temperature is a certain, you know, with a room temperature a certain way and it contrasts with your body temperature. So all of this is impacting the learning context. And what compensation says is that every student's individual neurobiology is going to manifest differently based on genes, development, environment, and a host of other factors that are all impossible to separate out from school. There's too many variables. You can't ever get to that place of raw cognition. So the idea of cognitive compensation is solely that unless we can really look at fMRIs and understand precisely how reading should happen, which honestly is impossible. There's no way to map it for everyone universally. But if we have an idea of what it might look like, then we could align what we're doing to try and get that student's individual neural pathways to look the same. But chances are there's going to be some sort of individual difference, a gene, something else. That means their compensation pattern takes them on a slightly different route. Compensation often occurs for students who have, oh, I should say it this way. We see it most often in students who have a sudden cataclysmic drop-off. What has happened is that at that point, let's say a student is good at math, quote unquote, they're a student in math up until eighth grade. They get into an algebra one course and all of a sudden it looks like they're a C or a D student. Now, what happens with compensation is that up until that point, that student has been compensating, routing neural pathways through things that do work to do the hard computational stuff of math while still struggling immensely with math. But up until that point, it has appeared as if they're a proficient math student. Once they start getting these bad grades, the narrative quickly becomes, oh, you're not a math student. When in reality, what happened is that that pattern that was routing it through a different sector suddenly couldn't bear the load anymore, or it couldn't do the work or whatever we want to say, it failed somehow. And then in turn, the task feels impossible, even though it may not be. The fact that the student had compensated prior to that probably indicates that they could build a different workaround. But now they have to do it very quickly, and they're falling behind every time that they're not doing it successfully. So now there's an emotional cue saying you're not good at math, and there's everybody else saying, well, it seems like you're really struggling with math. The student's assumption is that I should not try because there's, no, there's nothing I get out of this process other than being told I'm not good at it. And so compensation is a raw biological, you know, neurobiological phenomenon. But you can see very quickly how emotion ties into this to encourage or discourage those workarounds from being built or rebuilt. And differentiation is so powerful because if you have someone saying, 
this is a square, this is an exponent, right? And then someone representing it as the same number times itself a number of times, or the same number of blocks times themselves a number of times, or the same letter times itself a number of times. If you have it in eight different contexts, one of them might be the one that your brain locks onto and says, yes, that's it. Or it can look across a couple and find the pattern that can in generalize and transfer over to a new context. Now, that is your brain essentially compensating in that moment. If the raw thing didn't make sense, the differentiated form would. So compensation is just this idea that there is no standard typical neural pathway on which all brains operate. And it's sort of one of the underlying assumptions about raw cognition and about school is that learning happens in a particular way for everyone and that this is the most efficient way to do it. Um, and that's not real. That's, I think, the other big thing that compensation breaks away from you, that individual difference is way more nuanced, subtle, and present than we ever could have imagined. And if you're interested in this, people like Nadine Gab, um, John Gabrielli, James Shine, um, these are all, and Robert Sapolsky, these are all neuroimagers um, who are looking at the brain and individual differences. The first two I mentioned, Gab and Gabrielli, are looking at early markers of reading difficulty. So looking at the neurobiological foundations of reading difference. And Sapolsky is looking at um, neuroendocrinology and behavior and perception. Uh, so what hormones get activated when we see things and how does that impact what we think or our decision-making process. And James Shine looks at um, systems level interactions in the brain. So that's how all of these things talk to each other and how they get routed and also how neural pathways get built as the brain develops. Yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Oh, that, no, that's a, it's all great stuff. So um, where do I go from here? <laughs> <laughs> now, like the research is important. And yes. you know, in, in order to conduct some of this research, you do have to isolate. But I, yeah, guess, totally. I, I guess the challenge is when research and application are two totally different things. And yeah. when, when we don't see that, okay, yep, here's an idea let's apply it and see where it goes and adjust rather than taking it at face value and say, this is what I got to do. You know? So I, yeah. I think that's kind of where um, the application of this research is falling flat is, Oh, somebody way smarter than me that just studied this for years said that I have to do this. So that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And this is twofold. I think teacher training really should change around this stuff just because I think I, I really don't think like having a PhD in neuroimaging, you know, the words PhD in neuroimaging make people shrink. You know, if you're an educator, you hear these words and it's like someone's clubbed you. Uh, but it's not it's I don't want to say that those people aren't smart, but I also I don't think teachers are like teachers are very smart. It's very hard to do what teachers do. It's a particular skill set. It's a particular task. And that's not meant to diminish it. And I don't think that they're any less smart than the researchers doing this. And I think the researchers who look at the brains all the time would tell you that there is no real such construct as smarter than or, you know, whatever. It's just a question of how brains compensate and what patterns they find themselves in. But that doesn't really manifest as a raw intelligence or raw capability. Like I know so much about this because my work is helping students for whom evaluation has fallen short. Right. So I have to know this. Sorry. I have to know this stuff because otherwise I have nothing to help the students I work with. But likewise, if you told me, like, here's how to help 30 kids and differentiate during a group activity, I would be floundering for the first five to six years that I was doing it because I have. Yeah. So it's it's 
it's an interesting idea that we have this conceit that this is somehow people smarter than me and I am but a lowly classroom teacher. But in reality, so much of what teachers do that they do correctly is based on intuition that perfectly aligns with brain research and individual differentiation and everything I've just mentioned. So many teachers intuitively pick up on the link between emotion and learning. They pick up on the, the cues between patterns of executive functioning that they don't really have words for. But if they share that feedback with a kid and the kid trusts them, I think that's the other thing that's huge here. Teachers for so long have recognized the way in which relationships actually can help learning happen in really difficult contexts. And I think teachers who have realized that building trust with students is an essential component of helping them get through really challenging material, that is something that science took 50 years to get back to and realize the promise of. So I don't want to diminish, I, I think like, I, I don't want to say that like you have to actually be quote unquote smart to read this stuff. You don't. And I don't really think of myself as a smart person. I think of myself as a person who is almost compulsively fixated on just trying to figure out a very simple question, which was how come I couldn't figure out that the student I had taught for six months couldn't read the way I thought she could. And that's still the thing that drives me is how, how can I better understand what students, what, the information they're giving me by what they're doing. And that's, you know, I think when you get back to it that way, it sounds very simple and people are like, oh yeah, but you know all this stuff. But again, I've been doing this for 12 years. I think if anyone had stopped teaching full time and had the time that I do to research, I think they would be there too. It's just a question of the environment that teachers find themselves in, which is stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Which is you need strategies tomorrow. You don't really have the time to do the research. And the stuff you're getting from professional development is either complete surface level nonsense or it's essential components of the ways in which school is systemically oppressive. Um, like the anti-racism work is so important, but simultaneously so is everything else we're talking about today. And you have to pick and choose, right? Because you don't have infinite time. You don't have infinite numbers of professional development credits or hours. Um, and I think the need for strategies is real. Teachers do want to do better all the time. But I think that also speaks to the flaws of the system. We've put teachers in this impossible position where they all want to do better because what they, they, what they have isn't totally fulfilling every one student. Um, and it's just this endless quest for how can I continue to expand my knowledge base and grow as a person and as a teacher um, while we watch, you know, I mean, like during the, the Trump years, watching Betsy DeVos just utterly, you know, sort of hammer students over higher ed decisions, over, you know, charter school stuff. I mean, there's just all these intersections between policy, state level, federal level stuff that impacts everything teachers do on the day to day. And there's so little autonomy. And so I think it's, I, you know, I, I don't know if I could say clusterfuck on here, but like, it's a clusterfuck, right? It's like this perfect storm of you guys having very little agency and control and this desire for stuff that works right away. And then also being told and messaged by administration, by people in the Department of Ed that this is evidence-based practice that works. And having that signaling that this is codified, hard, absolute science that we've tested and empirically verified. When in reality, if you dig into it, most of the scientists behind that stuff, not necessarily the people that did the evidence-based study, but the people for whom they took that information from, right? So it's like not the actual scientist, but the person then running the education study. The scientist would likely tell you, you know what? I don't think this should be applied in that way. Or there are some caveats. The education study is really about getting an evidence-based study, you know, proven to show that it works. So then someone can say, this is the way we should be doing it. We don't have to do any of that. If we shrink class sizes, 
if we move away from constructs like the idea of grades, if we move away from that construct of intelligence and the ableist framing of education, like we've, the education system has chosen to be this way for a long time. Teachers didn't choose this, right? No one signed up and said, yes, let's grade everyone. Let's segregate students out of special ed. Most of the time, let's have a horrible way of diagnosing this stuff and let's let states dictate what a learning disability and what isn't. So it's just luck of the draw if you get dyslexia remediation or not. Um, so I think it's a huge question about like how do teachers fit into this interplay or this intersection between research and application. But ultimately, I think it points to the failure of a federal level mandate about how education research should happen. Um, and I think, honestly, I think two of the things that are fascinating to me is that Mary Helen Imordino Yang, who, in my opinion, is one of the most seminal figures in education research right now, was a former high, uh, middle school science teacher. And that's sort of what made her that much more capable of creating immediately applicable findings, right? And looking for these intersections, which she knew were there. Um, and that Nadine Gab, right, who's fascinated by um, the neurobiological markers of dyslexia or reading difference, um, has always been fascinated by reading difficulty and ways to get kids to read earlier and identify it earlier because she understands the magnitude of the problem. So I don't know, like I think the, the major disconnect for me isn't so much that application and research are so far apart. It's that there's an incentive for third-party companies to come in, build a bogus study, fund it themselves, say it works, and then sell some curriculum. In particular, like, I, I guess I shouldn't name names, but I'm going to anyway, like Greg Tang builds a lot of math that happens in a local public school near me. And they're like, <laughs> they're the most ableist pieces of garbage I've ever seen. Like they're, they're horrible in so many ways and they're so poorly designed um, with this idea that they're fun and engaging and different. Uh, but it's, it's, there's no thought to this whatsoever. No one looked this over, no clinical neuropsychologist said, you know what, this is going to leave these kids out because there was probably an evidence-based study behind it at some point, or there was some sort of verifiable thing which people could look at and say, that's science or that's true. And when you dive into this stuff more, when you get into the research more, I think what you realize is that most of the research says there is no truth. There are partial truths. There are correlations. And really what we need to keep doing is keep digging. The application stuff is dangerous because it takes the research and it it slathers on a veneer of certainty over stuff which is mostly uncertain. Um, and even even if you look at cognitive load theory, which you know is sort of like a huge hot point of debate in the UK and Australia and in some places in the US right now, the idea that you can isolate it from emotion and measure it is a huge sticking point. But even the the evolutionary biology piece on which it's based, this idea that there's biologically primary and low energy consumption thinking, and then biologically secondary, which is high energy consumption, the idea that that exists uniformly is also in question. And I forget which, I don't know if it's Sweller or, I don't know, it's not Sweller, it's one of the other ones. I don't know if it's Nuthall, but one of the other ones, person who's big on working memory, basically said, even the biological secondary primary divide isn't necessarily concrete and fixed, right? It might be adaptive, it might shift, it might be developmentally contextualized. So I, it, there's so much uncertainty in the research, to me it seems impossible that anyone could ever get to a place of application. And what I've done in my work is literally years of trial and error, <laughs> realizing how ignorant I was and how this stuff wasn't working, and then attempts to cobble together frameworks that were loose enough and adaptable enough to help the learners I was sitting with, but I, I'm also one-on-one. -on -one. I don't have to make it work for 30 kids in a classroom. And quite frankly, 
if you really want to not be ableist and not make massive assumptions about what's going on in a brain, I don't know if you can ever get to a place where anything bigger than like, I don't know, 10 kids that you know super well, I think it's really impossible to sustain the education model we have and not just perpetuate a lot of these systemic problems where you're grabbing at straws, like little strings flagging off of really good research and trying to weave it into a sweater um, when you have one thread. And I think that's that's the situation I think most educators find themselves in. They're looking at their thread and they're like, how do I make this a sweater? I need more stuff, get me more threads now. But the quest for that, and also the assumption that whoever gave you the thread knew what they were doing is hugely problematic. Um, and I think that's, you know, unfortunately, I don't see any quick fixes to that anytime soon, unless we're really willing to go down to like 12 kids in a class all the time. Yeah. And, and look, learning's messy. It, you know, it, it's not linear. It's, it's different for different kids on the same day. It's different for the same kid on a different day. And so you hit the nail on the head, the flexible framework where, you know, we talk about meeting students where they are, but then, you know, we have all these other structures that don't allow it. Yeah. You know? So, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, so much good stuff there. Um, now you, you say you, you, you work with students one-on-one -on -one and, um, you know, you have, uh, pillars of learning, you have Penelope education where you talk about a lot of this stuff. Um, and I know you have another project that you're, you're currently working on as well. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, the, uh, you know, Penelope is like a data, like brain-based qualitative data systems and consulting with organizations, schools on that stuff. So how to build and rip out qualitative brain-based data after out of sources that you might not expect you could find them. And that's really a way of enabling sort of an anti-ableist framing of student strength, right? So it just lets teachers that don't know a lot about things like the intersection between executive functioning and processing realize that that might be there, right? And that it lets them see what's in an assignment that they're giving, what's in a curriculum they're using. Pillars of learning is, is the straight one-on-one -on -one work I do. That's the tutoring um, as well as test prep, um, where we specialize more in neurodiverse learners and twice exceptional students. Um, and there we're really just um, helping with content or we're helping, you know, pre pre prior to the pandemic, before a lot of colleges went test optional, it was a lot of test prep for students for whom had taken test prep courses and saw no improvement uh, or just were really struggling with doing, you know, traditional test prep models. So we built alternative ones for them that's still entirely personalized around however they're learning and, and looking at that same qualitative brain-based data to build things for them that's custom and unique to each student. Uh, and the thing I'm trying to do now is pull all of these findings together in a way that makes them accessible. Um, in case this podcast wasn't evidence enough, I tend to talk a lot <laughs> and I talk really big um, and I have a hard time getting down to like core simplistic ways of expressing stuff, um, which isn't bad. I don't mean to dismiss people that are really good at distilling it down to points. Um, but for me, that's been a continual struggle. So the next project I'm working on is this sort of uh, content channel, which will have videos, podcasts, uh, articles called the prefrontal vortex, which is also my Twitter handle. Uh, but it's about looking at the chaos in the brain, the uncertainty that we have about it and attempting to think our way to an anti-ableist framing of education, looking at systems that intersect with the brain, with education, um, looking at, you know, how we can look at uncertainty and ineffability in the brain as a strength, um, how we can think about neurodiversity on an individual level, 
not just in terms of two categories of those are neurotypical and neurodiverse and that's it and you're in one camp or the other, but the idea rather that everyone has some component of neurodiversity and that school only really exposes students who individual compensation patterns don't fit with school and that in reality it's actually everywhere all the time. So the prefrontal vortex is going to be that if I can ever get it done. You know, that's uh, <laughs> that's that's the really big challenge is if I could find the time and, and the effort to dump into that. But hopefully it's fun. You know, the podcast and videos are going to have all original music, which I'm trying to do just as an effort to um, draw more attention to the ways in which platforms repeatedly take you know, royalties and earnings away from artists. So it's got all these intersections also of like the ways in which we consume information is important. Uh, and for me, that's essential just because I read so much raw science and then see it conflated or twisted in terms of how it eventually lands in the classroom or, or for the most part in the ways that parents think about research like grit. I don't know if you remember when grit came out, but um, I feel like I'm still dealing with kind of a grit hangover from <laughs> having to explain like, you know, single-mindedness really isn't actually a huge strength in a lot of ways. Uh, and also like no amount of grit is going to undo a visual processing disorder. You could, you could grit all you want, you know, like you're just, you, need, you actually need to think about the brain differently here. It's not going to just magically go click if you just keep at it. Um, and I think that's the thing I also deal with, right? It's like when we had the grit mindset or when we had no child left behind was accountability was this, a magic bullet that's going to solve all the problems. Um, the idea that um, these things aren't damaging, you know, I think that's the other component is that you have to see the harm in these models and, and really dive into that and be prepared to say like, what I'm doing is, is hurting kids. And I think Shelby strong um, wrote a great article on math anxiety, um, which I'll send you the link after this, but she got a huge blowback from people that were saying it's impossible that teachers could ever inflict harm by making a student anxious. Um, and I think that's, that's another problem we have with teachers, right? It's like, there's so many things that teachers already get blamed for and realizing the possibility that you might unknowingly be doing harm. I think that's a reality, but I think for so many teachers, it's like, I can't possibly bear to have one more thing that I might be doing wrong and need to adjust, right? Because it's like, why doesn't someone else fix this? Um, and I agree with that completely. Like it's totally unfair. It doesn't change the reality though, right? That if you don't know enough about how anxiety manifests and things like complex trauma, which isn't even in the DSM, right? It's in the international analog. That's how good the US is having insurance companies write medical criteria. Um, you know, chronic trauma is a byproduct of chronic stress of um, chronic situations where a student does not feel, or a child does not feel safe. It's a product of adverse childhood experiences, which is this very interesting field of, um, you know, trauma research for on young brains, um, which again, if you have the time, I totally recommend anyone reading up on that. But um, my point here originally was that we don't, we don't really look at these intersections too often and teachers don't have the luxury of being able to look at them because they're, they're squeezed for time, for energy, for, for heart. You know, there's so many things that teachers do that keep kids afloat. Personally speaking, um, I was a teenager with a undiagnosed mood disorder. Um, I am lucky that I had teachers that I felt close to and could talk to about things that I would never speak to my parents about. And I think if I hadn't, I really don't know if I would be here today, let alone where I would be, you know? And so I think there's a huge component for teachers where so much of what they give is unrecognized, unspoken, unsaid. And a lot of research points to the ways in which they need to change their practice. Um, and that's, I think, how a lot of people perceive it. And that's the farthest thing from what I'm saying. Um, I think a lot of the stuff that teachers do well 
is going to be verified by research, if not now, very soon. Uh, a lot of the things which teachers have been doing for years, intuitive great teachers, um, is going to be held up as a shining example of what we should keep doing. Um, so I don't know, like there's there's a lot in everything I say all the time and I often talk past myself and that's again, my own neurodiversity there. Um, but I think for the most part, if we can come back to one thread, this idea of compensation, that this individual brain pattern and how it manifests is the most important thing you can center in your teaching practice. As long as you're committed to that and you just don't wanna hurt anybody, I think making adjustments, you know, thinking, even thinking about inclusivity, even if it's not possible, is still a noble goal. Just trying to be anti-racist, even if you stink at it, is still great in your learning and having that beginner mindset all the time. Um, again, I'm still trying to figure out how six months went by. I didn't see any of the things for that student. And I'm not, I don't think I'm smarter than the average teacher. A, a lot of teachers have more experience than I do. They can tell me, they can lock down patterns of things that I can quantify and tease out the actual metrics that are in it but they can talk about it like that and they can see it instantaneously like, oh, they just need more practice with this and they need to draw lines. And it's the same thing I would eventually come to and tell a kid. I just have fancier words for saying it. And so the divide here, I don't, if we go back to compensation, I don't think the divide is between practice and research. The divide is between the systems that ensure teachers aren't a, a co-collaborator in designing an education system that works for everyone. And I think, again, the systems component, I think is what keeps us all yelling at each other on Twitter, even though we all want the same thing, right? And it's like the the debate between this is useful kind of science I can take and run with, that's why I love it and I'm attached to it, versus it's full of uncertainty and really it's not as nice as you think and you shouldn't run with it. And then, you know, it just escalates from there into these binaries. Um, well, but we're all, yeah. Spe speaking of Twitter, uh, you had recently <laughs> posted we're, we're all in the same camp and wrong yeah. about it or we're yeah. all in opposite camps and wrong about it. So, yeah. you know, and it's the only right. way you can exist on Twitter, right? It's like, yeah. you have to, it's a, it's a, it's just a argument algorithm. <laughs> well, Hey, look, you, your meme game is on point. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. It's all, I, I am a horrible artist. It's all stock images I bought and then just make funny captions. So oh, I was wondering yeah. how you did it, but like, yeah, yeah. So, subscription to vector stock is my only okay. plug here. That's uh, my sole gift to uh, my sole ability to create art is solely because of someone on vector stock who draws amazing fifties idiots. <laughs> no, it, it's absolutely spot on. It, it's awesome. But uh, no, in, in all seriousness though, like, I have learned so much from you over the the past couple of months, and uh, I really do think it's positively impacting the way that I think about teaching, the way that I engage my students. So I do appreciate everything that you're doing. And say back at you, man. Going going grade list, I think is a great book. I've I've like barely cracked the first ten pages because I'm just so behind on other stuff, but. I love your whole approach. I love, I love other episodes of the podcast. I love a lot of the stuff you put out there as well. Um, so I'm just really, and also the uh, teachers going grade list chat you moderated was really rich. Um, so also humbled by your work and your contributions. I appreciate that. So how can people connect with you going forward? Because I really think they should. Um, after the new year, I'll be back on Twitter. If I've hopefully like <laughs> done enough work on the project I'm working on. I'll probably get distracted at some point and, and hop back on there, but uh, I'm at learning pillars on there. Um, otherwise email is easiest. Um, Michael Weingarth at gmail.com or pillars education at gmail. Um, that works fine. There's forums on both my websites. You can ping me at, um, but th that's how to reach out. All right. Hey, thank you so much for joining me.
Yeah, thanks, David. Thanks for having me on.